Good morning, everyone. We will start the session soon, so please be seated. Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the session. You are in the session, Nurturing Young Food Citizens of the Future Through Policy System and Environmental Changes. My name is Hee Jung Song. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Nutrition and Food Science at University of Maryland College Park. I will be a moderator for our 60-minute session today. For this session, we have three presenters. Two speakers will give us a virtual presentation, and one speaker is here with us. 
So uh, regarding the session format, um, after each uh, presentation, questions will be taken from microphone. So if you have any question after each session is done, please come to the microphone and ask a question. Okay, uh, since we have three speakers, let's uh, start the session. It is my great pleasure to introduce our first uh, speaker, Dr. Seungmin Lee. Dr. Lee is a professor in the Department of Food and Nutrition at Sangshin Women's University in Korea. She is also the head of Gangbukgu Center for Children's Food Service Management, and she serves as Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition Research and Practice. Now, I will turn the session to Dr. Lee to begin. Could you please uh, open the slide? <laughs> Dr. Lee, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Thanks for the introduction, Dr. So. Uh, can you activate my screen share? Sure. Would you please open the slide? Would you please open her slide, unload her slide? Dr. Dr. Lee, uh, can you open your slide to share? I can't do that because it is inactivated. The host is to activate the participants' okay. screen share. I can't, I still cannot open my screen. Dr. Lee, mm -hmm. if you don't mind, uh, can we switch the order of presentation so Dr. Sarah Burkhardt can go first while kind of resolving the issue? Okay, yeah. okay. thank you for understanding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Due to some technical issues, uh, Dr. Sarah Burkhardt will go first. Okay. okay. I will briefly introduce um, Dr. Sarah Burkhardt. Dr. Sarah Burkhardt is a senior lecturer in nutrition at the University of Sunshine Coast, Australia. 
Her research used a food system lens to explore food security and consumer behavior in the Pacific Island. Dr. Burkhardt is a co-founder and current chair of the Pacific School Food Network, a regional group that supports school food activities throughout the Pacific Island region to eliminate hunger and improve food um, security. So I will turn the session to Dr. Burkhardt. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. I know there's lots of choice at the moment, um, so we appreciate you being here. Um, once the slides have been popped up, I will get started. Um, as mentioned, I'm talking about school food and nutrition activities um, in the Pacific Islands this morning. So while it's not an in-depth, um, I guess, discussion of what's happening at the moment, hopefully it will give you a bit of a snapshot of some of the things that we've been working on for the past few years. Before I do get started, there are lots of people who have been involved in the work that I'm going to share this morning. Um, so I would like to acknowledge my um, collaborators from UniSC, um, FAO, the Alliance for Biodiversity and CIAT, um, DFAT and ACR, the Pacific Community and the Global Child Nutrition Foundation. As well as that, I'd also like to acknowledge the funders of this work as well, the FAO Sub-Regional Office for the Pacific Islands and the Australian Centre for International Agricultural Research. So I'd like to start by giving you a very brief overview of the Pacific Islands um, for some of you who may not be as familiar with that area. Um, school food and nutrition environments in the Pacific Islands have the potential to really transform food systems. Um, we have quite a few significant challenges, which I'll talk through in a moment, um, but we really can see the potential of school food environments contributing to improving nutrition and health outcomes, increasing educational outcomes, and enhancing livelihoods for populations in that area. So I will start by just setting the scene a little bit to give you some context, and then provide some key takeaways from recent projects. Um, then I'll finish off with some successes and challenges, as well as opportunities for looking to the future. And for those of you who are less familiar with the Pacific Islands, I know this is maybe not the, the aspect of the globe that you might always see. Um, down in the bottom corner, you can see part of Australia. Um, New Zealand's popped down there at the bottom under some cloud. But really, the Pacific Islands are located across this vast area. Um, so it is a very, very big area. Um, when we go in a little bit, um, you can see some of the islands here, but this is not showing all of them. Um, some of these countries have one or two islands. Some of them have hundreds, um, and they can be spread across an incredibly long um, and big geographical area. So we tend to talk about the areas within the South Pacific um, linking into Micronesia, Melanesia, and Polynesia. Um, so what I'm going to share today actually has examples from across all three of these regions. Some of you might be aware within the Pacific Islands we are going through a nutrition transition at the moment. Um, there is increased availability of ultra-processed foods and things like cost and convenience are really driving food choice at the moment. What we also have is really significant rates of diet-related non-communicable disease. 
Um, so a few years ago, that was actually declared in the region as a health crisis. Um, we know as well when we're thinking about school environments and thinking about young children that nutrition status during childhood has a significant impact on adulthood. Um, so it makes sense to really focus on this area. And while there have been small pockets of work over time, there hasn't really been, a, I guess, a cohesive program of work really thinking about what do school food environments look like and what do they offer. Um, in the Pacific region too, it's also really important to note that schools and churches have a very significant role in communities and they have a significant influence on the communities that are around them and more broadly. And that's something we have to be really careful of and really considerate of in our work. Um, of course, climate change is a significant challenge for the region too, and it's really inspiring. We have a lot of work that is focused around climate change, um, and there's very clear ways that we can think about school environments linking to that. And for those of you who are not familiar too, across the region we have some islands which are incredibly fertile, and you can have very good agricultural production. Um, but we also have atoll countries where you actually don't have soil. So to produce your own food is incredibly different, um, difficult through agricultural production. One note before I continue as well, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about school food in this presentation, but I wanted to just highlight that while we know school feeding programs, and I think when we talk about school feeding programs, we're often talking about large scale programs, these are not commonplace in the Pacific. So we have a few countries who do have national school feeding programs, but lots of the school food activities are on a much smaller scale or that ad hoc activities that might happen. Um, so I think that's just good to keep in mind because while we know there are benefits of school feeding, um, it's a little bit different in this region. So I wanted to start just by providing some information on some background um, scoping studies that were done back in 2018 and 19. Um, and I think this really helps to set the scene of what's happening and what is the capacity for school food and nutrition um, environments and changes that we might be able to look at. So this is some work that we did with the FAO sub-regional office in the Pacific and we tried to map what the current state of nutrition education programs in schools was, um, as well as what type of school food activities were occurring across those countries. And while it was of interest to find out what was happening, what we were more interested in was the capacity for these and where, where were our biggest gaps, I guess. So I'm going to talk you through a little bit in terms of some of the findings of this. I'm not going to share um, what was happening because if you'd like to do that, you can jump into the report and have a look. But I think what's of more interest in thinking about our opportunities for the future is around what we found in terms of capacity. So across both of those projects, when we're looking at nutrition education in schools and we're looking at food in schools, we looked at policy knowledge, partnering and implementation. Um, and what we found was that this varied quite a lot across these countries, which is what you would expect. They all have different government structures. Um, they all, while they have a Pacific Island culture, have nuances to their culture as well. So policy varied across countries. Um, responsibility and political commitment varied. Um, and some of you might be aware within the Pacific, some of those governments are actually at the forefront of things like taxes on sugar-sweetened beverages. Um, but in other countries, there is very little political commitment at the moment. 
There's limited evidence of policies to actually direct procurement of local foods, and I'll tell you a little bit more about how we're trying to um, delve into that soon. Um, and we know that there is varying um, integration of school guidelines or standards and whether these even exist or are in place. Um, some of the real significant challenges in this region, I think hopefully highlighted by the fact of the geographical challenges that we see are around knowledge and partnering um, and thinking about how do you actually share learnings across countries and even within countries, um, things like um, stable access to the internet is not something that you can take for granted. Um, often if you are sharing resources, you actually have to print them out, put them in the post, and then hope that they arrive um, in the destination that you're sending them to. So while we found that there were significant challenges around knowledge and understanding what was happening, as well as that partnering capacity, there was incredible motivation for these types of projects. Um, which has been really fantastic. Over the last few years, we've had a lot of support to get together and say, how do we start to think about some of these? Um, implementation is also a significant challenge in the region, um, and that tends to come down to resourcing. So that's not just financial resourcing, it's human resources and physical resources as well. So while I'm only going to give a, a very short snapshot on that, um, I guess the key takeaways from that initial work is that there is limited capacity for these programs in our region um, due to that lack of supportive policy, access to and sharing of knowledge, our workforce capacity. Um, so within the region as well, we have two universities that provide training for dietitians and nutritionists. Um, otherwise, you actually have to travel to Australia or New Zealand or elsewhere to train in nutrition. Um, so we do have a, a very small nutrition workforce. Of course, geographical location and communication. But what we found was that motivation I mentioned was really high. Um, but there's also things that are happening that show that we can be successful if we are looking at this in the right way with the right support. I wanted to, I guess, delve in a little bit deeper into a specific country now too, just to give you an idea of some of the school food environments and what they look like. Um, this is some work that we did in 2020, um, just as COVID was about to, I guess, create quite a lot of havoc in Fiji and everything was shut down. Um, so we had a group of people who we drew a 400 metre radius around each school um, that was chosen. So we had almost half of all the schools that had the health promoting um, schools framework in place. Um, and what we did is we went around and we asked people to map all of the different um, locations that were available for children in that area and what were some of the common foods that we found. Um, probably not surprising, and I'm hoping that you can see this on the slide because it is quite small. Um, what we found that was highly available were lots of the foods that we would be encouraging less consumption of. So the sugar-sweetened beverages, the candy, lollies, confectionery. Um, but the foods that we would like to be encouraging more consumption of, like the local staples of taro, cassava, the fruits and vegetables that we have, um, very little availability of that for children. That's not to say they're not getting them at home um, or in other places, but if they are going out of school looking for options, um, it shows that they, they're pretty limited in finding healthy ones. To tell you a little bit about some of the activities in the schools in Fiji too, um, gardening is really popular. Um, uh, it's not gardening on a large scale. These are quite small gardens. 
Um, but what we found when we looked at those schools was that 71% of them had a garden. Um, while they had gardens, they used them in quite different ways though. So um, 58 schools used that garden for actual food production, um, with only half of those though reporting that they had harvested produce in the past month. Um, most of that produce is consumed by students, but if there is excess, that tends to go to the local community. So it gets ho sent home with the kids, um, and that can then go out to parents or to other people who might be looking for food. The gardens used in the curriculum of 68 of those schools, so quite a lot of integration into the curriculum. Um, we don't know yet how that's done in terms of what subjects that sits in, but agriculture tends to be quite a strong subject. Um, so I would assume that most of that is in ag classes. Um, really, really excitingly, almost 100% of the schools reported a food and or nutrition policy, um, which is great because Fiji is actually one of the countries who have got policies around um, school food environments. And some of them do have kitchens and provide meals to students at school as well. Um, so this information is available in another bigger report as well if people would like more information. But I thought I would just highlight some of the entry points from this work. Um, so this work was very timely in that we were able to feed it into the food systems dialogue, the national dialogue in Fiji um, that was held um, only a couple of years ago um, and developed some policy briefs around this. So while I won't go through the list of all of those entry points um, on the screen, they, I guess, are a really good starting point for the Pacific because while this is Fiji-specific, um, these are likely to work across the region as well. With that, to, I guess, give you another little snapshot of some of the work in this place because we are quite tight on time today, is some work that we're currently doing. I thought I would share um, how we're trying to look at linking local food systems into school food across the region. Um, so this project includes 22 countries across the region. Um, so it's very, very significant and we're really lucky to have a fantastic team working on this. But what we're trying to understand is the capacity for local food to go into school feeding programs um, with the aim that when we get to the end of this project early next year, that we will have a, a Pacific homegrown model of school feeding to trial. Um, because taking what works outside the region is not necessarily going to work in our Pacific context. Um, so all going well, we might be able to say this is what we think Pacific homegrown school feeding looks like um, and be able to scale that up and try that. One thing I thought that might be of interest as well is the small word cloud you can see there. That's just some of the initial comments from stakeholders around why would we want to have school feeding? What is the purpose of school feeding in the region? Um, and I think what's really nice is when you delve into some of those words, to me it really seems like a food systems approach because it's not just all about nutrition, it's not just all about education, it's about livelihoods, it's about climate change, it's about how do we come together and do something that's really cohesive. So while that is a, a really short snapshot of some of the project work, I guess what does this mean so far? Um, so we do know that there are lots of school food and nutrition activities occurring across the region, but they vary in scope and approach and they vary in sustainability. So sometimes we see fantastic projects get up and running and start, but they're not sustainable for various reasons. 
Um, some of them are already linked into school curriculum, um, but there are real challenges in doing that too. We found that teachers through some of this work um, really reported to us that they feel that nutrition is really important, but they don't have the skills or the knowledge to translate curriculum into lesson plans in the classroom, or they don't know where to find resources that might be suitable to use. Um, so there are some really significant challenges for teachers. What we know though by the success stories that we are hearing is that there are significant opportunities to learn from each other. Um, but that's a really tricky thing to do across a place which is very, very um, widely spread where, like I mentioned, the internet is not always working incredibly well. Um, people are incredibly busy wearing many, many hats as well. Um, and Pacific homegrown school feeding is likely going to look different to other models that we might see. Um, but I think that's really exciting to think about what does that look like for the region and how do we bring um, all of our stakeholders together. So some of the opportunities that we have within this area, um, we need far more evidence. Um, so we need this for policy change. Um, at the moment I mentioned there's a lot of motivation to make change. But we need the evidence for that because if we want the policymakers to actually take that, we need to have, have that in place. Um, we have some challenges in how do we measure school food environments as well because if you do pick up the literature, um, you can see that there is some fantastic work but it's not consistent. So it's really hard to track that over time and see what's changed. Um, we have very limited data available too on child and adolescent eating behaviours. Um, which is a really big challenge for us. We know there are challenges and there are issues, um, but we don't have the data that back that up, um, unfortunately, at the moment. One thing that we've also talked about in our work as well is there's often a whole of school approach considered for school food environments. In the Pacific, what has really come through is that this needs to be a whole of community approach. Um, so it's not just the school's responsibility, but because schools are such an integral part of that community, it needs to be the wider community. The church needs to be involved. Um, the chief elders and so on in the village need to be involved. It needs to be bigger. Um, we need to further support teachers and the broader school community to increase food literacy. Um, significant potential for school feeding programs and we do have some countries in the region at the moment um, who are planning pilots of national school feeding program and looking at how they will scale that up which is incredibly exciting. Um, we also have opportunities for working across sectors and organisations but we need to understand what the role of each of those is and how do we support multi-sectoral policy in the region as well. And also thinking about how we learn from each other. How do we best do that to support everyone? So to finish with, um, I thought I would just very quickly share that we, part of this work resulted in the formation of the Pacific School Food Network a couple of years ago. Um, and if you are interested in hearing a couple of fantastic examples, um, you're more than welcome to go onto the webpage um, and just go back to some of the slides and the recordings because we have some people from across Fiji, Palau, Tonga and Solomon Islands um, talking about some of their work and they can explain that in a way um, much better than I can try and explain what they're doing. So if you are interested, please feel free to um, jump on and have a look. And with that, I will say thank you very much for your interest in attending this morning. I know it's been really quick, but if you would like any extra information, um, I can direct you to that, or I'd be really happy to chat as well. Thank you.
one or two questions. So if you have any questions, please come to the microphone and ask a question to Sarah. That's a really great question, um, and that's something that we did explore a little bit. Um, tends to be during the school term that a teacher might get allocated that as this is now your responsibility. Um, if that doesn't happen, it tends to fall on parents, which we know as well is not always sustainable. So that is one of the biggest challenges with the gardens, um, is that if there is not a really um, I guess responsive principal or someone who's really enthusiastic about making sure that works, it is really hard to keep them going, um, especially off term time as well. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, so now the next speaker is Dr. Lee. Uh, Dr. Lee, the slide is ready to open. Dr. Lee, are you there? Luckily, you can uh, start the session. Um, I am very honored to give a presentation at this exciting session of SNAB's conference. Um, the title of my talk is Rural Impact of Center for Children's Food Service Management in Korea. From now on, I will call Center for Children's Food Service Management, CCFM for short. Um, I'd like to share some of my experience and lessons as the head of the one of the CCFMs in Seoul for the past 10 years. Um, I will go over in this order. The purpose of CCFM establishment is to support systematic hygiene and nutrition management for communal feeding facilities for children which are not legally required to hire a dietitian. Currently, communal feeding facilities with meal number fewer than 100 per meal are not legally obligated to hire a dietitian, and this was a major background of the CCFM initiation. Um, the other background includes that as working woman population increases, there has been increased use of childcare facilities followed by rapid growth of communal feeding for children. As the quantitative growth of communal feeding for children has not kept pace with the qualitative growth of a provided meal, public concerns about this has increased. From my point of view, the history of CCFM since its establishment until now can be divided into three stages, start, growth, and maturity. Between 2008 to 2010, a few basic research related to model and operational manual had been conducted. In 2009, Article 21 of a Special Act on the Safety Management of Children's Diet was implemented which acted as the legal background for the birth of CCFM. And 2011, uh, 
12 pilot CCFMs were opened finally. Over the next decade or so, the number of CCFMs nationwide increased rapidly. And 2021, two years ago from now, a big step was made, a legal paragraph that all the communal feeding facilities for children with less than 100 mil number should register for CCFM was added. As, as of end of 2022, there are 236 CCFMs across the country. This figure shows the CCFM's operating system. Korean Food and Drug Administration and local governments provide funds for CCFM's learning. KFDAA also produced operation manual development, and based on this manual, local government directly install and manage the each of CCFM in the community. In between KFDA and CCFM, there is a National Institute of Food and Nutrition Service. And this institution provides direct support, education, and management. And the, each CCFM are mandatorily report performance report annually. And this report goes all the way to the KFDA. In the community, Communal feeding facilities for children such as daycare center and kindergartens register, can, can register for the CCFM service and CCFM provided services for registered centers. And also CCFM can provide educational material to the parents directly and indirectly through the daycare center or kindergartens. I'll go over about the specific programs of CCFM. CCFM's programs can be divided into two major categories, mandatory program and optional program. A mandatory program is that all the CCFMs should implement according to the operational guideline provided by KFTA, and an optional program is an individual CCFM's own program. Mandatory programs include the best-in check, education and information provision. Visiting check service is the core program provided by CCFM, which a dietitian regularly visit each daycare center and kindergarten to provide hygiene, safety, and nutrition management. Visiting check service proceeds with the steps of a visit, check and guide, discussion for improvement, and result report. In the checking guide step, the standardized checklist forms presented in the operation guidelines is used. Each daycare center or kindergarten receives the visiting check services four to six times each year. These are some of the photos of a visiting check service implementation of CCFM, Gangbukgu, Seoul, where I am the head of the center. Checklist form for hygiene part include items for personal hygiene, cooking process, and environment management. And the form for nutrition part include the items for serving size, food allergy, manual recipe, and salinity management. 
For each visit, a score is calculated according to the checklist described for its the last year's mean score for hygiene, hygiene and nutrition, SSFM in Gangbukgu, Seoul. Steady management over the past 10 years has resulted in overall good scores. Currently, CCFM provides hygiene, safety, and nutrition education to various target groups, including children, parents, directors, and cooking workers. Education is being conducted in various ways as individual education, group education, face-to-face, -face, and non-face-to-face -face education. The next mandatory service is information provision. CCFM provides several types of menus and standard recipes each month, considering the various situations of the facility. We also produce and distribute monthly educational letters sent to children's home. In the early days of CCFM implementation, not many facilities use the menu provided by CCFM, but now the user rate is quite high. It's over the 90%. And if it is necessary to change part of the menu due to the facility's circumstances, we provide a review service for the changed menu. And here shows the number of menu supervision service last year at the Gangbukgu CCFM. In addition to the mandatory program, each CCFM implements various programs of its own. I will introduce some main programs of Seoul Gangbukgu's CCFM. Soup Salinity Monitoring Program has been continuously implemented for the past several years. Soup Salinity is monitored two to three times a week using a Bluetooth salinometer. The standard salinity is presented as 0.4%, which is much lower than the saltiness preferred by general Korean population. And this graph shows the average soup salinity has been well maintained below 0.4% over the past few years. We operate a variety of programs in the form of subject participation, such as low sodium recipe contest, for the investor song and dance UCC contest, kitchen improvement photo contest, and so on. Also, we develop and distribute educational materials. Here are some examples. This is a healthy menu recipe book for children for which we produce the menu and recipe, cooked and photographed. The next example is an education video and meal kit for picky eating prevention for the use at children's home by parents. CCFM, which has been running for 12 years this year, is currently operating stably, but it has been not without hurdles to reach this stability. Um, there has been cynical perceptions of daycare centers and kindergartens directors at the early stage of implementation. The directors had strong doubts that the CCFM would become another partial surveillance and control body. And also a rapid turnover of manpower within the CCFM due to high work intensity is kept going on and on. These hurdles has been overcome with program, clear program effectiveness and benefits and sincere and 
the CA communication and cooperation with community leaders of daycare centers and kindergarten directors. The problem of manpower shortage is being sought to overcome through standardization and systemization of work protocol. Next, I will briefly talk about evaluation and overall impact of CCFN. The evaluation for CCFM consists of 80% weighted on-site evaluation and 20% weighted satisfaction evaluation. On-site evaluation is implemented by KFDA and IFNS and local government together and is evaluated with 26 items in two areas of operational management and feeding facility support. Satisfaction evaluation is conducted by selecting random sample of daycare kindergartens directors and parents and surveying satisfaction with CCFM services and improvement of children's eating habit improvement. If the sum of the on-site and satisfaction evaluation score is over 80, it is judged as acceptable, that is pass. This chart shows the result of 2021 and 2022 directors and parents satisfaction survey score. Overall, it shows a good level of satisfaction. CCFM is evaluated as in having a positive impact on local community in Korea. First, it contributed to increase in parents' trust on communal feeding safety through management by experts. And it has contributed to securing environment for healthy growth of children through provision of menu with nutritional balance according to the stage of growth and development. It brought systematic operation in terms of hygiene, safety, and nutrition to small and medium-sized community feeding for children, which had been a blind spot for systematic management. This is my last slide for wrap-up. Uh, central and local government-led nutrition and hygiene management of children's community feeding facility in the community has been successfully implemented. At the beginning, there was a cynical view in the field of daycare center and kindergartens, but now CCFM's function is recognized indispensable and it has led to legally mandatory registration for small to medium-sized uh, community feeding facilities for CCFM. Um, I think the success factors include um, basic researches for CCFM model operation in the beginning, and, uh, and standardized and specific operational guide by KFDA, continuous training efforts of CCFM steps and multifaceted communication and public relation effort to, to keep the CCFM's roles in the community. This is all I prepared today. Thanks for your listening. Thank you, Dr. Lee. Uh, I will take one questions for Dr. Lee. Any questions about CCFM or food service management system in Korea? Yes. Um, thank you for your talk, Dr. Lee. I think that's very interesting. Will you please come over yeah. to the microphone? <laughs> uh, hello, Dr. Lee, can you hear me? 
Uh, yes. Thank you very much for your talk. Um, and it's great to see that this um, program was implemented so well and has been so successful. I'm curious, what are some of the current goals for improvement or growth or longevity that you all are currently working on for these centers? Our current goal for the improvement of the CCFM? Are uh, so goals for improvement or some future um, improvement goals that you're working on? Oh uh, yeah, currently the direct the kinder daycare center and kindergarten directors has a very high recognition, and they recognize our role very high. However, the recognition by parents and and parents is a little bit lower compared to the director's recognition so we try to find a more direct way to come to communicate with the children's parents in the community to 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 uh to to broaden our ccfm's service in the community okay thank you dr Thank you. Now we will have the third presenter. <laughs> Dr. Margot, are you there? Hello, Dr. Yu. Yes, I'm here. You're there. Thank you. Okay, I will um, kind of provide brief um, the bio about you. Dr. Margaret Udagora is a faculty and undergraduate dietetic program director in the Department of Nutrition and Food Science at the University of Maryland College Park. Dr. Udagora is also a program reviewer for the Accreditation Council for Nutrition and Didactics. Dr. Yu has years of experience in teaching didactic courses and received several outstanding grant and teaching awards, including the Global Classroom Initiative Grant. Dr. Yu, I will turn the session to you now. Thank you so much. I will share my slide. Can you see my slide okay? Yes. Perfect. Okay, I'll go ahead and start the presentation. Thank you so much for attending this session about Global Classroom Initiative, uh, a course I developed with a colleague regarding nutrition-sensitive food system between the country of Ghana, which is uh, a middle-income country located in uh, West Africa, as well as the U.S. So the project was funded by the University of Maryland Global Initiative, and I work closely with Dr. Haman, who is a senior lecturer at Kwame Kuma University of Science Technology in Kumasi, Ghana. He actually completed his food science PhD at the University of Maryland. So with the funds we got, we, were, we worked together for three years, and we recruited 15 students uh, undergraduate student in each country. So over a, a period of three years, 90 students took advantage of this course. So the purpose was for us to really uh, develop future professionals by giving them an opportunity to have an international experience during the COVID time when no one could travel. And that was to help them learn the grand challenges in agriculture, health, and nutrition in another country like in Ghana, 
it was also to help them understand the use of system in finding durable solutions to those grand challenges. Lastly, we wanted the student to appreciate and practice the interdisciplinary uh, uh, approach that is necessary to solve some of these big issues. So uh, with this session, I hope you are going to be able to appreciate and identify multiple ways you can incorporate what's called eight associations Association of College Employer Career Readiness Competency into our grad undergraduate courses. And I also hope you'll be able to um, apply key finding from this example on how to uh, use an international collaboration approach and experiential learning so your student undergraduate can learn. So what do we mean by career readiness competency, first of all? Uh, this is one of the framework we use in developing this course. This career readiness competency consists of eight key component, and that critical in preparing college education for success in the workplace and life uh, career management. Let me highlight a few of the components that were very necessary for our course, uh, such as communication, critical thinking, equity and inclusion, technology. Later on, I'll be highlighting on leadership. When it comes to communication, I inform you we were working with two countries, Ghana and the US. So it became very necessary to practice clear, effective exchange of information facts, ideas, perspective with people from different cultures and, and also organization. Secondly, for critical thinking, it was very important to allow students to practice uh, how to identify and respond to the needs upon and, uh, after they under, understand the true context because the issue of agriculture, health, and nutrition in Ghana are different and unique compared to what they are used to in the US. Uh, in terms of equity and inclusion, that was to allow students to practice, uh, to practice uh, the demonstration of uh, awareness, attitude, knowledge, skills that are necessary to engage everyone, people from different backgrounds, and uh, include everyone in the process. Lastly, technology, and of course this was for us to practice and help them to understand how you can leverage technology and do that efficiently to complete tasks as well as accomplish goals. Uh, this is a busy slide, but it's very important because uh, this is the second uh, framework we use. A food system is complex. Let me start by guiding you through it. We know we're familiar with food uh, supply chain from production all the way to the processing and to availing in the market. We also are familiar with food environment that will affect the availability, the environment, and so forth. And also, there's consumer 
consumer uh, behavior on where and what they eat. And, and uh, within this system, there's also that in terms of quality, quantity, safety, and all that impacts the nutrition outcome and the health of participant of, of, of uh, population. And of course, that also impacts the social, the environment. Um, in addition to those key components, we have here in blue some of the key drivers, whether they are environment, changing uh, climate, technology, the politics, the government, the resources, and you name them. So we give a student, uh, we utilize this per, uh, framework so our student could embrace this complexity and also appreciate how politicians, nat national and international institutions, and others utilize all this information to come up with specific goals. For instance, you are all familiar, hopefully, with the sustainable uh, uh, development goals that are utilized by UN, the United Nations, and various countries around, around the world to decide on what are the priority and the type of funding that's necessary. So those were the two framework, which means we provided students with all the reading materials that came from the UN, that came from the Food Agriculture Organization. We'll also spend enough time visiting the nutrition and agriculture policies of Ghana itself. Uh, and there was another component of leadership material and recording. So what platform did we utilize for that? We used Canvas, Elms, UMD. So uh, the Ghana students were added to our Canvas. And we created also small groups uh, by pairing students from different countries. Uh, there were regular announcement, weekly Zoom meetings. There were Google Drive. There is a Google Drive participation. And uh, for us faculty, we communicated regularly on WhatsApp. We also have area of discussion where students were able to work together. So having looked at the complexity of the food system, what did we focus on exactly in this class? We looked at the nutrition-sensitive agriculture in terms of production and availability of healthy food to enhance food security and nutrition in Ghana. We looked at the nutrition-sensitive post-harvest handling uh, and then the nutrition behavior and dietetic by considering the trend in non-communicable diseases, uh, the incidence and the prevalence in Ghana, what are the approaches that are provided by the country, the availability of dietetic uh, services and effort. And we made sure to include a critical component we call cross-cutting issues. One of the cross-cutting issues are in terms of role of women in agriculture and nutrition. So these were areas where students had to either read material, had guest speaker presentation, and others. And we had a second component where we wanted them to complete a final project based on field work. But before we got there, it was very critical to bring both groups to the same 
table to bring them to the same uh, level of understanding. So we utilize uh, leadership skills because we wanted them to discuss and identify challenges and benefit of international teamwork, how to work effectively, to articulate, they started by articulating commonalities and differences uh, in their perspective on the subject matter of agriculture, health, and nutrition. They were able to identify their own cultural assumption and reflect on how they could shape their attitude and behavior. And of course, we also prepared them prior to the field work to apply project management and cross-cultural communication. What, there are various cross-cultural communication techniques that we visited, and of course, there were also how to apply discipline-specific concepts, because we had students from nutrition, food science, public policy, public school, and others, so we helped them to understand what's the application of discipline-specific concept, theory, and method to analyze and evaluate situations. So what you have here are guest speakers from Ghana who helped us with the various topics. We have someone from the public health, we have someone from post-harvest, we have a nutrition biochemistry, we have animal agriculture, we had one of the head of the department uh, who is specialized in food system who was helping, and also we have a dietitian. We evaluated the work of the student by looking at the type of introduction they, they, to other team, how they participated, interact with speakers, and they were bi-weekly lectures and quizzes, and in terms of leadership activities and discussion, they work in team and reported and presented on specific uh, 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 project. The last part is on team research project. Uh, it had various components. It was truly a mini, a small research that reflect what's happening with the people we studied, but will now represent the whole population of Ghana. So, uh, in preparing for the field work, students were taken through the process of the work that must be done, like the Committee on Human Research Publication, the ethical clearance, the local government approval, the community entry pro protocols, and the recruitment and training, as well as how do you prepare tools for data collection. Students were given opportunity to comment on quality of length of questionnaire, and Ms. Isi was excellent in uh, helping with that process. So these are pictures during the data collection, and uh, the findings uh, were that each group had a research question. We mentored them in completing literature review, describing socioecological model they were focusing on, and each group got 30 household where data, where they did the analysis, discussion, and they presented the final project. Two-fourths of their grade actually came from this uh, uh, project. So this is just a quick uh, overview of a few uh, analysis that were done using some food security scores, household data diversity scores, food waste index scores that are unique to Ghana. 
So they were able to compare what we have in the U.S. compared to Ghana and by looking at urban and rural and peri-urban. So to end my presentation, I would like to talk about the challenges, the solution, and the opportunities. I will put the challenges into two categories, collaboration and virtual connection. In terms of collaboration with people from other cultures, background, we became successful through preparing students with leadership skills. We brought them on the same page. They understood teamwork. We prepare them for communication. And also, they build on other strength. Students gave us feedback. Uh, they indicated that they were able to relate, gain understanding and insight of the topic uh, that were being discussed. Uh, they actually enjoy not being rushed through the process because they were able to have hands-on, learn, and communicate. They, that also increased their knowledge about the research process in Ghana. Uh, and I can say that this experiential learning and research while using technology were, were uh, successful. Virtual connection, uh, we rarely had internet issues, so that was great. We used it to teach for course activity. We used different tools, as indicated. And uh, there were students who were using cell phones, so or they had to move to the next town uh, to uh, be able to work. So we were able to accommodate and make sure no one fell behind. So the teamwork really helped. So I'd like to thank all the individuals, on uh, uh, the vice president of the International Affairs, the chair of my department, uh, the various people uh, who are specialized in international studies, uh, those in Ghana and uh, all the students. So, and I would like to welcome any questions you might have. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Yu. Any questions for Dr. Yu's question? Yes. Hi, um, I just had a quick question about some of your selection processes. So um, considering the variations in like socioeconomic status of different families in Ghana, I was just curious if there were parameters used to identify which families would be analyzed. That's a great question. Yes, we uh, decided to uh, get uh, uh, some people from the urban, rural, and peri-urban. So we. Uh, Whenever we started with the first household, we will run, we'll count up, we'll count five, and then take the fifth household. In case that person did not accept, we'll count again. So we try to get a convenient sample, but at the same time, giving a chance everyone to participate by just trying to uh, uh, try to get a little bit of randomness in how who we were selecting. So again, with the pandemic, we were limited on the number we could select, but also this was for the purpose of teaching where students could appreciate the scenario of people, and that's why we can now conclude our findings to the rest of the population. Thank you. All right, uh, probably I can take one more question. Any further question? Can I ask a quick question, Margaret? 
Yes, please. You mentioned about the role of women in agriculture and nutrition decision making. Well, what does it mean? What is the current uh, woman's role in nutrition decision making in Ghana and what's the implication of women's role in nutrition? That's a very great question and very important, especially when you look at Ghana or any other African countries. Women have a big responsibility when it comes to food production, but they cannot decide on how the money is going to be spent once the food is sold. So uh, what we wanted for the student to see was how can you empower the women not only to produce, but to decide on what's going to be utilized at home or how the money, the money coming from the food they are selling is going to be managed at the household level. And it, the second reason is because once you allow women to uh, have a voice, actually they make such a huge difference for the household. You see the improvement in nutrition, in education, and others. And of course, men are, are also very helpful, but we tend to see really a big role of women or lack of role and how it, it, it does impact negatively the household. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. All right. So now I will wrap up the session and thank you to all three presenters and attendants for joining the session. Hope you uh, enjoy the remainder of the conference. Thank you. Thank you.